if this extraterrestrial life form is smarter than we are, they would eat us. aren't they justified in torturing the shit out of us like we do non-humans? I kind of think it's an important moral I don't question. know if they would be justified, but you're just proving my point that they would actually do it. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Rakesh Lott. Before we begin, I want to remind our listeners of a new show that's part of our network called the Daisy Crime Podcast. And what's really interesting is that you're used to all these stories, Jack the Ripper, Son of Sam, but there are all sorts of stories from around South Asia that you've never heard of. Given that there are 1.7 billion people in India and many more in the surrounding countries, there are so many stories you've never heard about. And each week, they bring you those stories in super engaging fashion. So you could subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Desi Crime Podcast. That's D-E-S-I Crime Podcast. Well, Corey, with that, what do we have? We have a lot to talk about today. On today's show, from a Google Doc to a defamation suit, we'll talk about why the woman behind the shitty media man list could be headed to trial. President Biden says he's finally rolling back a controversial border measure after two years. We'll ask why now. New education polling says young people have different ideas than old people. Imagine that. We've got some fascinating numbers reflecting two divides, generations, and political parties. And finally, scientists are planning a new way to reach out to aliens, leading some humans to wonder, should we do a little work on us before we put ourselves out there? So all of that is coming up next. But first things first, we want to start on a very serious note today with an update on the war in Ukraine. We've gone beyond accusations of Russian war crimes to pretty airtight proof in a suburb of Kiev where dozens of civilians appear to have been executed by Russian troops. We do want to warn you, this is going to be somewhat of a graphic conversation. Ricky, start us off with some of the details about what's happened here. Um, So now Russian troops have almost entirely pulled out of Kiev and they've gone mostly to Belarus, likely to re, um, like restock and get reinforcements. And the devastation that they left behind is pretty evident. Um, uh, Bucha is about a mid-sized, pretty small city outside of Kiev. And within surrounding cities, 410 civilian bodies have been found. Um, and there's really disturbing images that came out this weekend of bodies just kind of thrown around the uh, thrown around the streets and people with their hands tied that have been shot in the head, bodies that were burned, evidence of sexual assault, torture, torture chambers even that they found. And they're just being dumped in mass graves because these cities don't really know how how to handle them. Um, and Russia has tried to deny these claims, saying that the Ukrainians placed the bodies there afterwards. But the New York Times analyzed satellite images, and it seems that it lines up with the timeline. And it's most likely or pretty much definite that Russia is at fault here. And the international community is pretty much coming down on the fact that this these were war crimes. I mean, they're clearly being perpetrated against civilians and not against military members. And so um, we're hearing kind of international outroar. President Biden has called Putin a war criminal. And um, but the problem is that there's not really a mechanism to enforce that legally. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a couple different bodies that are issue here. One is the ICC. For people who don't remember this, like in the 90s, this was a big conversation as different countries were coming together to say, how do we prevent these kinds of atrocities happening in the future? The U.S. was actually initially a big leader in bringing about this international criminal court. Uh, Clinton signed it, but then uh, he refused to send it to the U.S. Senate for ratification. And so the U.S. was among a small handful of countries, only seven, uh, that wasn't a signatory at the time. And this included China, Iraq, Israel, Libya, Qatar, and Yemen. So that's that. That was those were our, our fellow travelers back then, and wow. so much of the 
Um, the attention right now is on the ICC, which mm -hmm. Ukraine is not a signatory to, but they have accepted the jurisdiction of. And so that is one of the major bodies that's at issue here. And I think the question, Ricky, is what do they have to prove in order to show that this was a war crime? Clearly, there have been war crimes perpetrated. I, there's estimates that there are about 95, but a lot of people are going after Putin and saying that he should be tried, including President Biden. But that seems very impractical, just legally speaking, because you would need to prove that the chain of command from the event, you, first of all, you need a lot of evidence about how the event came to fruition, which is oftentimes really difficult in conflicts. And then from that evidence, you need to be able to trace the entire chain all the way up to the top. And so legal experts are saying that it's far more likely that mid-level people like generals might be implicated. Um, but even that is difficult. And that's a huge hurdle that prosecutors have to jump over. And more likely would be a charge of aggression against Putin, since this was pretty much an unprovoked attack. Um, but it seems that, you know, there, there are different efforts underway to make a tribunal, maybe um, through like different states or through the UN. But it seems right now that that's all very much just in the talks and seeing Putin actually held to account is likely not going to happen. I just want to take a quick look at this video of Zelensky surveying uh, some of this horrible damage that took place in Bucha. The Ukrainian president seen here visiting Bucha, accusing Russia of trying to hide the traces of their crimes in other parts of Ukraine that remain under Russian control. Every day we find people in barrels, strangled or tortured in basements, President Zelensky says. It's very difficult to negotiate when you see what they have done, he adds. I mean, when you think about the concept of war in general, there are some people who are going to ask what constitutes a war crime versus what is just actual battle. Uh, the UN lays out um, a couple of, well, a lot of actual stipulations to what they consider war crimes based off of the Geneva Conventions of 1949 and generally pretty much anything in which you are attacking civilians. Uh, that generally rises to the level of a war crime. And it seems like that's what happened here in, in this suburb of Kiev. With intent, right? So I think the intent is the key part. So I mm -hmm. think they distinguish between accidentally uh, yeah. striking a yeah. civilian, which is going to happen in almost every war, unfortunately, versus intentionally doing it and systematically doing it. Mm -hmm. Part of what Russia's revealing here in some of their denials, they are actually offering evidence for this. Because when you have the defense minister saying that, quote, not a single civilian has faced any violent action by the Russian military, to me, that is legally relevant because it would be one thing if they're saying, look, like this is really unfortunate that civilians have been killed, but it wasn't our intention. That's one thing. It's a whole, which is usually what the U.S., to the extent you can ever get the U.S. and other countries on record on this kind of stuff will say, yeah. which usually gives them cover versus saying, oh, it didn't happen at all. I think it looks super suspicious. And the way that these, whether it's the ICC or some of these special tribunals usually look at this is this principle called uh, the principle of complementarity. And basically what it means is home countries, the investigation is usually on the home country yeah. to figure out whether war crime occurred. So a good example is the US with Abu Ghraib, for example, like um, if for people who don't remember this was a prison in which there were very credible allegations that the US was uh, abusing prisoners. and that is a war crime because once, uh, whether they were combatants or not, once a combatant has turned themselves over to your custody, you have a certain duty of care under the Geneva Conventions to treat them a certain way. That was true of Abu Ghraib, it was true of Guantanamo Bay, and there was video evidence and plenty of other stuff to show that uh, that prison was a hellscape. 
And uh, there were people prosecuted there. And was it good enough? I think at the time, and I still continue to believe it wasn't good enough, but I think the international community generally gives a, a lot of leeway to countries once they've at least made some attempt to hold their own people accountable. I think the worry here with Russia is they're not even making that attempt. So I think they're exposing themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, there really is no way for the quote-unquote international community to enforce actions against a person. International who's done. suggestions is what my international law professor yeah. used to call it. Yeah, <laughs> it's impossible. Now, unless you're like a small country, I mean, obviously there have been like African dictators and people of very small countries who have been tried at The Hague or something for war crimes. Yeah, like Charles Taylor. But it's, yeah. it's all about power, not about morality in my no. in this situation. No. Like, like the more powerful you are, if you have a seat in the UN Security Council, China, for example, what's happening with the Uyghurs, they're not going to be held accountable uh, because they're too powerful. You can't, mm. they're not going to drag, uh, you know, the, the head of state of China um, before a tribunal. It's just impossible to do no. given yeah. the way that the world works right now. Yeah, most of the, um, the heads of state have been, it's been like they've been tried after their power had fizzled out um, yeah. and same in the Balkan area as well. Um, but it's important to note that historically it's not states or regimes or militaries that are being charged with war crimes. Generally, it's individuals that perpetrated them. And um, oftentimes just by nature of war, it's so difficult to pin that down or to trace it up. That's virtually impossible in many instances. Well, speaking of the trace up, I mean, for Biden to call Putin a war criminal, to suggest that he is solely responsible for these crimes. I mean, there have been people who have called George W. Bush a war criminal for things that occurred in Iraq. But at the same time, when you look at some of those things, I mean, you mentioned Abu Ghraib, there were other massacres and things that happened. I mean, there was the situation where the Blackwater employees uh, committed some atrocities uh, against Iraqi civilians. Individuals were brought to trial, but no one put George W. Bush on trial for those crimes. No one suggested Obama be on, on trial for those crimes. So is it, dif is it a difference between suggesting that these troops be on trial versus suggesting that the exact head of state be on trial? Yeah, and to clarify, one thing you said is that I don't think that the implication is that Putin is solely responsible, but he is he is the ultimate person responsible. So like the generals were also responsible under the Nuremberg principles, meaning like you can't just use that you were carrying out orders mm -hmm. as an excuse for uh, committing a war crime. That's been well established since then. You know, this the, the situation in the U.S. is instructive, not because I think anything that's happened in recent and I emphasize recent U.S. history, is anything close to what's happening in no. this suburb. Uh, but I think the case of the Blackwater uh, contractors is instructive because they were prosecuted, but then Trump pardoned them. Yeah. And so that is, if I'm somebody, an Iraqi civilian, for example, I'm looking at that situation and I'm saying, well, like, why, like, the principle of complementarity, like, has been violated here. You haven't actually held your people accountable here. And so that to me, I'm sympathetic to people who are a little bit frustrated with the US as this sort of beacon of morality on this issue. But at the same time, as a citizen of the US who has been, you know, the, I was against the Iraq war, I was on fire about Abu Ghraib and the treatment of prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. I think that, I, I both think that our country can do better, but also think that we as an international community need to draw the line when people are targeting civilians like this. And it's a really tricky thing to do. One final thing to mention on what you said is, you know, not just anybody is accusing Bush of war crimes. Katanji Brown Jackson wrote a brief explicitly calling Rumsfeld and uh, Bush war criminals because of their uh, alleged torture of prisoners in Guantanamo Bay because she was representing a client there. Now, there's all sorts of debate about 
what she meant and why that showed up in her brief, et cetera. But this is not some kind of like wild speculation here. This is a pretty prominent debate within the United States. I think the really unfortunate reality that this whole conversation gets at is that war is really ugly and in virtually every conflict, somebody on either side is responsible for war crimes. Right now we're seeing in Ukraine, unfortunately, they'd killed uh, Russian soldiers that were imprisoned. And, and I think, you know, obviously there are some sides of conflicts that are far more um, egregious and that are from a higher up, more aggressive level, um, as I think we see right now with Russia versus Ukraine. But unfortunately, I think this just gets to the reality that um, no matter what the conflict looks like, people get caught up and really ugly things happen on the ground. It's also important to point out that no matter what the U.S. has done in its past, it doesn't excuse anything that Russia is currently doing in Ukraine. And I would add to that, that it, it adds emphasis to those of us who want our country to be the, the very best it can be, to be as good as we possibly can be, because it hurts our moral standing whenever uh, we allow things like the, you know, the justification of torture that happened uh, back during the Iraq war or like the pardoning of people who've explicitly committed war crimes. Like that stuff hurts our international standing. Once again, not saying it's the same but it just prevents us from being the moral authority we could be on these issues. And so that's frustrating. And I think it just adds impetus behind those of us who want to fight to ensure that we're the best version of ourselves on these issues. Speaking of being a moral authority, let's talk about morals in a little bit of a different sense. Back in 2017, just as the Me Too movement was picking up steam here in the U.S., journalist Moira Donegan put together the shitty media men list. Her well-intentioned effort to help women steer clear of creeps quickly exploded online. And now a defamation trial against Donegan brought by one of the men on the list might be going to trial. Ravi, you're the legal expert general counsel here in our office. Explain <laughs> just what exactly is going on here with this list. Right. People might remember this. Uh, this was back in October 2017, just mere weeks after the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke. Uh, there was uh, a spreadsheet that was making its way around the internet. This woman that you mentioned, Moira Donegan, was the sort of creator of this list. It didn't last very long, but people went in and they populated it. And essentially, the the purpose of it was to anonymously describe encounters that people, and it was mainly within the New York City media environment, but there were some others from around the the country and world who showed up in this spreadsheet. But people went in and, and anonymously described encounters that they had with people, prominent men in media. It was dubbed the shitty media men list. And reporters quickly got wind of this. They were starting to write stories about it. The list was deleted, but then repercussions quickly were swift and certain prominent members of the media were fired because of some of the allegations in the spreadsheet, including some people who very clearly should have been fired because of certain things uh, that were in the spreadsheet. But there, there was a whole debate that ensued about the role of anonymous accusations. Uh, there was a debate about whether some of the things that were in the spreadsheet were true or not. And uh, I think very clearly a lot of people were conflicted about holding certain people accountable, but also the the lack of sort of due process that certain people had in, in, in this sort of saga. And then that was just in the court of public opinion. But uh, Donegan was then sued by one of the people on this list, this gentleman by the name of Stephen Elliott. And among the accusations in the spreadsheet about Elliott were that he was engaging in rape, sexual harassment, and coercion. 
He sued Donegan as well as the anonymous Jane Doe's who populated this spreadsheet. That case has been making its way through the courts. The reason why we're bringing it up today is because it was a really important ruling this week. A federal judge ruled that the case is going to move forward. And I'll describe in a second like why the, the, the sort of various legal machinations of this case are important. But I'll just take a step back to say, before we even get to the legal part of this, what do we think about the idea of anonymous accusations? I understand the reason why some people would choose to make anonymous accusations, but I don't think that firing people just on that basis or ruining their lives or destroying them without any burden of proof, without any due process, without with the presumption of guilt that I think did arise in some instances in the Me Too movement is entirely unfair. And while while I understand the desire to remain anonymous, I think that within whatever channel is going to actually dole out the justice and fire someone or, or bring charges against them. The person that's accusing needs to be known to whoever's going to make that decision. And it also needs to be known to the person who's being accused because that's really important. And it's impossible to refute claims if you don't know who is even saying it. You know, what's interesting about what she, what you just said, Ricky, is that I'm, I'm remembering that there's this phrase called believe women that was very prominent at the time, which I think a lot of people have legitimate issues with the idea of just believing anybody without any kind of back and forth over the facts. believe all women, I think. Believe all women. But this goes further. This is believe somebody purports to be a woman in this situation. Like it it could be anybody who writes anything in here. And as we'll get to, there are actually examples of people claiming to be other other people to make accusations um, for hostile reasons. Yeah, I mean, to what Ricky said, I want women as well as anyone who is a victim of any of these types of you know, sexual crimes or anything like that, I want them to feel comfortable coming forward and to have a mechanism to do so. But um, it is very possible for someone who has a grievance against someone to go to a list like this where they're anonymous and just say, hey, this person did X, 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 and X. And then if there's no true investigative process for being able to determine whether or not that's true and then you can't even know the person that's making that claim against you that could be very problematic yeah there's an example we're going to cite in the show notes uh, from the new york times this is a story from march 2020 of a professor marta cabrero and cabrero was up for a job as a university professor was applying for a job at a different university and all of a sudden after successfully making her way through the process Uh, started to see that on Reddit boards and then in her university's Title IX process, she was being accused anonymously of sexually harassing students. And you should read this article. It's maddening how she had to go through this process where not only because of the Reddit boards were anonymous, but also because her Title IX process protected the anonymity of people involved in the process. She was going through this, this thing saying, like, I don't know who's accusing me. I don't know how to disprove this. It was hurting her reputation. It was hurting her professionally. Turns out that the person making the anonymous accusations was a male colleague who was up for the same job and was hostile to her. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so this is the kind of stuff we need to protect against while at the same time understanding that there are legitimately terrible people out there that we need to hold accountable. And I think that's the balance that we need to strike. I want to point our viewers and listeners to uh, this article from Medium by this guy, Mike Tennyson, who was also one of the accused. And you should read his account about how his life was affected by being accused anonymously. He still, uh, at least as of his writing on Medium, wasn't able to pinpoint who it was that accused him. And he also, I think, very credibly pushes back against some of these accusations, including one that was he was able to verify through just calling HR at the Washington Post. But what's also interesting about Tunison's take is that he defends Donegan saying, look, 
love the way that this went down. I don't love the way I was treated. We need to, you know, find the right kind of balance here. But he does believe that the the, the outing of the the actual shitty media men needs to be done. And I think he just thinks it should be done specifically and by people who name their names and name their allegations in a way that people could refute. For me, it's difficult to say, oh, I feel like she should be held accountable for everything that everyone put into the spreadsheet. Um, but at the same time, then there's the issue that she deleted all of her texts from that period of time and that she may have been egging people on. And why did she delete them? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I'm not going to ascribe ill intent to her specifically. Um, but on Me Too more broadly, I think obviously it brought to light very important things that needed to be said. And I know that there are many women that are uncomfortable in workplace situations or have issues. And that's that's great that we've come around to that culturally. I think at the beginning, which is when this happened, things got a little out of control and it was just like purging men out of different industries with with false claims that were get, and um, their employers panicking and firing them without actually giving them a chance. And I think the pendulum has swung since then back to a little more normalcy. Like it was almost this like crazy floodgates of accusation thing and not even enough time to process them and actually do them justice. You know, one of the common statistics that's thrown around is, oh, only two Two percent of sexual assault uh, allegations turn out to be false, and that's a low end estimate. High end estimates say ten percent, but regardless, if you really boil that down, in twenty nineteen there were seventy five hundred sexual assault cases that were filed, and on the on the low end that's one hundred and fifty false accusations, and on the high end that's seven hundred and fifty. And if we don't have a society that looks at these people as though they're victims for being falsely accused and just allows them to kind of wither away in the in the background because we we took the accusations at face value, then that's not justice. And that is really important. And those are lives that are destroyed. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is in those cases, there are cases that are filed, at least there's at least a justice system yeah. version of due process. I think we as a society, this goes to conversations we've been having for a long time on the show. It's like, what do we do in a situation where it's not the legal system, but it's us as a society trying to bring our own version of due process? But Ricky, to your point about this case, right? So just to bring it back to the legal part of this before we move on, the Donegan made the claim, a really interesting legal claim, as we step outside of the sort of morality of all this. She made a, a claim uh, where she wants to exercise protections under Section 230, which is a provision, American law that we've talked about before, that shields internet providers from the content that others create on those uh, on those services. So, for example, if somebody posts on Reddit or on Facebook something, Facebook and Reddit are not liable for the content on those services under Section 230 protections. This is a very hotly contested area of American law right now that we don't have time to go into. But what's interesting is that, uh, and you alluded to this, uh, the judge hasn't really gone too far yet to evaluate that claim, but says this case moves on in part because the judge is not sure whether Donegan encouraged these comments or not. And that's one of the key questions that they're going to be asking at trial is, did Donegan go further than just saying, here's a spreadsheet? Did she say, here's the kinds of things I want to see? Did she actually fill in some of these these cells or not? Donegan claims she didn't. But the burden of proof has now shifted because, as you described, she uh, had destroyed certain parts of the evidence here. And so this is going to be an interesting trial. Uh, it looks like it's going to make it to trial. I think it's not only interesting from a moral perspective, but also is going to, I think, further clarify this area of what the limits of Section 230 are. It seems like she was 
more than likely well-intentioned in starting the document. But then again, when you can't control what's being put in there, especially when it's being put in there anonymously, I can see why this has made it as far as it has legally, as far as a lawsuit. But I do just want to caveat this by saying there is a dark figure to these types of accusations. There are women who never come forward because they don't think people will believe them. And so that kind of throws off any number of, well, you know, this amount may be false. There's a whole other amount that are absolutely true that are never even coming to light. So we have to remember that that as well whenever we're having a conversation about these types of accusations but accusations are powerful too and they do have the power to ruin people's lives so all of this does need to be investigated with as much um you know as thorough as possible uh so moving on for over two years a legal loophole referred to as title 42 has allowed both the trump and biden administrations to expel asylum seekers on the basis of public health it's always been on shaky legal ground and come may 23rd it's gone for good now, while immigration advocates are celebrating, this also has a lot of lawmakers, particularly Republicans, but quite a few Democrats, too, concerned about an overwhelming surge of migrants at the southern border. Uh, I want to take a quick look at what Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona, a Democrat, has to say about the possibilities of Title 42 being taken down. My priority has been to make sure that we have a secure and orderly and humane process at the southern border. And I'm really concerned that the Biden administration right now, they do not have a plan in place to deal with this. So basically, Title 42 comes from a 1944 public health law that was meant to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. Uh, essentially, what ended up happening was the Trump administration asked the CDC to invoke Title 42 based off of COVID-19 pandemic going on in March of 2020. It's important to note that the Trump administration was trying to invoke Title 42 prior to the pandemic, but couldn't figure out a, a disease bad enough to do it against. So once the COVID-19 pandemic started, that was basically uh, the perfect disease for them to be able to use to implement this law or to invoke this law. Um, so basically in March of 2020, we evoked Title 42. It made it extremely difficult for people who were coming over the border to seek asylum in the United States, basically making it where any asylum seekers basically could not seek it. And it also made it where instead of going through some type of immigration process when they came over the border, basically any migrant that came over the border illegally was just scooped up and sent back to their country without any real rigorous legal process. That actually made it easier for a lot of them to keep coming back, but it deterred a lot of families from seeking asylum because essentially there was no process for them to do so. Yeah, I think there, there are a few things we could stipulate to here. Number one is there is a crisis at the border. The National Review, which I know some people will have some feelings about as a source, says that the Department of Homeland Security is preparing for a scenario of 18,000 apprehensions a day. And if you want to just gut check that, Jay Johnson, Obama's former DHS secretary, has said that anything over a thousand daily encounters, quote, overwhelms the system and anything over 4,000 is a crisis. The DHS is currently reporting an average of 7,100 daily encounters. That's up from 5,900 in February. So basically anywhere you slice it, uh, there's a crisis at the border. There's unprecedented amounts of people trying to cross the border. I think 2021 was the highest year on record for encounters at the border that we've seen. And so Mark Kelly, who's Democrat, is reacting to that. He's also in an election year. I think that people are pretty urgent about this. And I think he's probably right that there hasn't been a sensible plan offered. I have very strong feelings, though, about using a pandemic era control to try to solve this problem. But they're right that there's a crisis. Yeah. Um, do I think that it made sense when we were locking down American citizens and, and cities and um, controlling day-to-day -day life in the beginning of the pandemic to make sure that there wasn't spread to then close borders. There's a, a reasonable argument to be made about that, sure. But then also 
do I think that there's a reasonable argument to be made that I'm now arguing that we should get rid of all these pandemic protocols and stuff. And that, of course, extends to this. Yes, of course. And so I think this needs to be lifted, but there's there's no good plan for what happens when it is. Um, 1.6 million people are in a backlog trying to get here legally. A huge injustice. And, you know, that's a place where I, as a libertarian, definitely break with the right because I am pro-immigration, but I'm also anti our immigration system right now. I'd like more immigration. I'd like more legal immigration. And the only way that you facilitate that is to have an actual comprehensive process. And it's become such a mess. And I think that ultimately this is going to really hurt Biden, especially right before um, the midterm elections to potentially see um, how this is going to backfire. I think there's going to be pretty much all the experts agree there's going to be a huge flood of immigration and there's not a way or a plan to handle that. And that's a huge mistake. I wonder why Biden decided to give himself another crisis to deal with. Can I, can, can I make an attempt at that? Internal well, pressure. Yeah, I think there's also legal pressure. So in September, a federal judge ruled that the expulsions were illegal. Uh, Biden mm -hmm. did appeal, got to stay on that order. But then in March 2022, a federal judge uh, said that the 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 use of Title 42 was mostly legal, but it needed to end pretty soon. And that happened at the same time that a different federal judge in response to a case that Texas brought said that the Biden administration was arbitrarily making an exception for unaccompanied minors. So the background here being that, remember the whole you know crisis around Trump uh, expelling unaccompanied minors. There was all sorts of legal stuff going around that. Biden came in and there was there's all sorts of, you know, legal and public policy changes that were made to try to prevent that even during the uh, Trump administration in response to their policy. But Biden came in and basically said, all right, we're not going to apply Title 42 to unaccompanied minors. Now, this this federal judge in response to Texas case said, well, you can't just carve out the unaccompanied minors. So I think part of what Biden is dealing with is one federal judge saying, you have got to end this at some point, probably soon. And the other saying, as long as it's in place, you can't make an exception for unaccompanied minors. So I think he's like, well, I can't, I can't be Trump and sending unaccompanied, he ran on this being immoral. Yeah. And it, to my opinion, it is immoral. So I think he's kind of caught here. Yeah. You know, well, it's a really difficult situation. It sounds like a lot of legal pressure. And I totally understand that. It also sounds like there needs to be more of a plan in place. And we really haven't heard from the Biden administration what that plan would be, because I'm all for legal immigration and I'm all for people seeking asylum. Obviously, with what's going on in Ukraine, we know that the Biden administration has, a, I think he's going to allow well over 100,000 people from Ukraine to come here as refugees. A little different from seeking asylum, but very similar. I'm totally for people doing that, but there has to be a process in which we do that. And we just haven't heard from this administration what that process is. Correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't Vice President Harris supposed to be involved heavily in that. Yeah, where'd decision? that go? I don't know. Uh, this does remind me of Afghanistan in a little bit in the sense that I have a lot of sympathy to the problem, the quagmire that we're in, and not a lot of sympathy as to the solutions and the level of detail and communication brought to bear on this issue right now. There's a whole other thing related to Afghanistan, by the way. We made an exception for Title 42 for uh, migrants coming from, uh, asylum seekers coming from Ukraine. I haven't seen anything about Afghanistan who are asylum seekers who were as responsible for it as any. So who explains that discrepancy? Like, why are we not allowing Afghan refugees to cross the border? I mean, obviously, Title 42 is unsustainable, but so is our immigration process as is. And um, I think there's a tendency on the right to just want to shut down immigration entirely and then a tendency on the left to want to 
um, help evasion of the process almost more so than reform it. And I feel like there are a lot of people that are in the middle on both sides that want to reform this process. And I mean, this is the sort of thing that we need bipartisan movement on because it just, it's it's so unclear, it's so muddled. I don't place any blame on people who wanna come here, who see a glimmer of hope in in coming here illegally because it's such an opaque process to go through it legally, especially in a time like this where the pandemic, there's this huge backlog and how are how are the people who are going through the legal process going to be treated? And in the end, we don't even really know and we've not been given good answers from the Biden administration. And, and given the worker shortage here in America, Biden could really turn increased immigration into a plus in many ways. It just doesn't seem like, again, it just seems like an ineffective ability on this administration's part to turn something like that into a silver lining situation. My challenge to the Biden administration is if they can figure out a process for this and implement it by the time Title 42 ends, I will be very impressed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I do think that they're dealing with a largely unwilling counterparty uh, in the of conservatives course. in Congress who I, I I'm struggle to see what they would actually accept in terms of immigration reform at this point. We've gone a long way from the party of McCain and George W. Bush, who are in very, mu- very much like on the vanguard of pushing for immigration reform. I don't see anything being dangled right now in the way of compromise on this issue. So I'm a little concerned. And even those who used to be very reform oriented on this and, and people like Rubio yeah. have been talking about it way less ever since. And so I'm a little bit pessimistic. We also have a you know huge backlog, um, you know, million to two million uh, cases right now in our immigration courts. These things are you know not going to be resolved in any organized way. And so I, I feel for the people caught up in the system, we need to come up with a solution and I'm not optimistic that we're going to get there anytime soon. Me either, unfortunately. Another system that needs a lot of reforming in this country is education. A new poll from Social Sphere is revealing some pretty stark generational divides when it comes to education, especially among voters in the actual same party. Ravi, walk us through some of these poll numbers. Yeah, these are either depressing or offer a lot of hope, depending on how you look at it. But basically what they found is that young people in both parties have different views than the older generations. And I think it, it it's stark when you look at this data. So first starting with Republicans. So when polling Republicans and they ask about, and you know, something that is a stand-in for critical race theory, this is how they ask the question. They say, should school districts teach, quote, all aspects of American history, including a legacy of slavery and racism? 59% of millennial and Gen Z Republicans said, yes, we should teach that. While 28% favored banning such lessons. So 59% think that we should teach a full reading of history, legacy of slavery and racism. But among the baby boom and silent generation Republicans, only 44% uh, supported those teachings, while 46% said they should be banned. So more said they should be banned than should be taught or allowed to be taught. Uh, There's a similar divide uh, among Republicans on teachers' unions, where the younger generation is way more supportive of teachers' unions by a plus 15% margin, whereas the older generation, minus 10%. And then very interestingly, on the question of school choice, they asked Democrats, and, and the wording here is really important, so I'll read it to you. They asked Democrats, quote, the freedom to choose the educational environment that serves one that serves one's child best, regardless of financial ability or home address. So is that something you support? And I'll read that again. The freedom to choose the educational environment that serves one's child's best, regardless of financial ability or home address. That received, that statement received support from 61% of the youngest Democratic voters, but just 38% 
of the oldest. What do we make of this poll? Only 38% of older Democrats said that they support someone basically choosing the, the school that would be best for their education. Yeah, it says that serves one's child best regardless of financial ability or home address. So basically they think that demographics and income should determine the quality of your school, which is amazing. The the the, the positive part though, or most young voters don't believe that. Yeah. They they are for more educational quality. Uh, Ricky, what do you read into this data? I read two things into this. One I think is the consumption of cable news because I think that you get a much more partisan stance. Of course, there's algorithms and everything with uh, an argument to be made with social media and getting it that way that you have a confirmation loop. But I think that having a single trusted sort of channel that you tune onto, which is what is more common in the older generation, can lead people to react in a more partisan way, in my opinion, um, to conversations or statements like this. And then the second thing I think also is just that for older people, we weren't, they didn't grow up in such a partisan time. And I think it was kind of a slow uh, descent into that sort of world. And for a lot of younger people, myself included, that's pretty much all I remember. And, you know, this was, this last election was the first time I could vote. It's only ever been crazy and partisan. And so therefore, I've had to think for myself more than just in the partisan lens, because I know there's truth on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, and I think a lot of young people feel the same way. And that's reflected here. They're taking this at face value, not with the connotations. And that makes me really hopeful and makes me really happy that we're seeing this generational change. Yeah, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that the older generation is now they're trained to look at seemingly like innocuous or obviously true statements and read into it the partisanship, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I see that, you know, regardless of financial ability or home address, oh, like I am like, I've been prepared for this debate over school choice and charter schools now. So I'm going to anticipate that's what's being talked about. Or on the question of legacy of slavery and racism, I've been hearing all this about critical race theory and all that. And even though like any reasonable person is going to be like, that should be taught in American schools. I now am prepared for what this could possibly mean to somebody else. And so I'm going to oppose it. And so people are really flying their partisan flags. Question though is what happens now? Do these young people become the future partisans or do they resist it? I was just about to say Yang Gang. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think a lot of young people, they're, they're not very big on the Republican or the Democrat party. They want a third choice and, and maybe Andrew Yang's forward party is that choice. Uh, I think a lot of them right now, the biggest thing is, do they even vote enough to have a real say-so in these decisions in the first place? I think I might be the most skeptical of Yang here, but I don't think, I, I, I won't go in on him. I think like, yeah, I do think they need alternatives. My worry here is that they become partisan warriors over time if we yeah. don't offer them those alternatives. It's obviously a big part of why we started Lost Debate. But I think the more they're involved in this American political polarist experiment that we're in right now, the more they're going to start answering these questions like everybody else. There's also this question of like the school choice thing. Once they buy houses, they have kids, they send their kids to a school, they're going to start being protective of those schools just like anybody else, unless we have a language of shared sacrifice and equity that kind of brings people together and says, look, like we need to move beyond our own narrow self-interest to create an educational system that looks out for everybody. Absolutely. Well, one thing that Ronald Reagan said would bring all human beings together is if we were contacted by a species from afar. Scientists are putting together a new plan to make first contact with extraterrestrial life forms. Now, we tried this once before. So it basically means we're 
double texting aliens after they left us on red back in the 1970s. But I do want to talk about this semi-seriously, especially in light of the late Stephen Hawkins warning that we should definitely not be giving out our address because of what these aliens could possibly do to us. Um, so basically, what is our take here? Scientists, they're, they're broadcasting Earth's location into space for possible intelligent life forms to pick it up and then know exactly where we're at. And there are some people saying, uh, like the late Stephen Hawking said, that's a terrible idea because these could be hostile creatures. Uh, so first things first, do we believe in aliens? I do. I know that you were circulating this thing called the Drake Equation yes. uh, before this, which is essentially some mathematical proof that purports to say that it's very likely, unlikely that there's life out there, like intelligent life uh, other than us. I do want to say, and I'm completely out of my depth here, but I'm just going to cite this paper because I want to believe this uh, from uh, two professors from 2016 in the Journal of Astrobiology. They say, uh, they basically take issue with this Drake equation and say, you know what? I actually do think that there's more intelligent life out there. And, and they think that it's almost a certainty that's occurred in the past, whether it currently exists right now. And the, as evidence for this, they cite new data about essentially that there are more habitable zones for every star in the universe than we thought otherwise, meaning like it's much more likely that for every star we see in the sky that there's some kind of habitable planet within those uh, solar systems. So I don't know anything about this, but I choose to believe that. And as we'll get to, I'm pro, pro contacting aliens. I think that one of the most interesting things is given how probable that seems to a lot of experts and to a lot of scientists just statistically that there is other life it's amazing that we've not gotten a single signal of any sort whether um, on purpose or rather by accident especially because we're within this the history of the universe we're very recent and new and there was plenty of time before us for other advanced civilizations to pop up so i mean i'm gonna i'm not going to take a strong stance on this one way or another but it's amazing that there's not been a single sign that we've picked up well they address this in the paper they say uh if if the aliens were 20,000 and i don't want to call them aliens let's let's just say other life forms let's be nice uh if they were 20,000 light years away then every exchange would take 40,000 years to go back and forth so it's possible that future generations if we're able to sustain life on this planet that long uh, we'll be able to receive the messages but i'm pro this because i think our civilization is largely in trouble here i don't think there's any reason i know that pop culture is you know dominated by negative imagery of aliens but there's no reason to think that they're they're going to be hostile to us i hate it on um let's just real quick <laughs> there are probably a hundred billion stars in in the milky way there's 200 sextillion stars possibly in the universe is that an actual number 200 sextillion yes a lot of zeros okay a hundred billion stars in the milky way galaxy the idea that at least one of those stars could possibly have a planet to support life is not a very far-fetched idea well, at can all. Can I add a stat to that? This paper mm -hmm. says that one-fifth of stars have habitable zones. So if you do the math, that means that, yeah, I mean, like, there's probably some life out there. Yeah. There... <laughs> Well, more than likely, you, you mentioned the Drake's equation, uh, Drake equation. It's not certified lover boy. It's an equation that basically tries to purport like how many like, like intelligent life forms are out there. And the actual Drake equation, because I think we had said yesterday, we had had a conversation where we talked about the fact that it came up with the fact that there really wasn't 
any intelligent life forms out there. But I actually did some research. It takes a bunch of different factors, like how stars form in the Milky Way, basically the rate of star formation in the Milky Way. It times that by the fraction of stars that could possibly have planets. Then it times that by how many of those planets are habitable. Then it times that by how many of those planets could support actual life. Then it times that by how you know, intelligent life could actually arise on those planets. Then it times that by actual detectable waves that those, you know, uh, life forms can send out. And then it times that by a very actual um, kind of a negative thing is the average length that the, that a technological civilization actually stays detectable because sometimes it's probably just go very away. Long. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And with taking all that into account, currently Drake's equation is N equals 0.00127, which basically means over the course of 100,000 years, Anywhere from upwards of about 127 detectable civilizations could arise. So that means that there could be about 127 uh, actual civilizations. But the thing about it is, like, there's so much space between us and them. Yeah, and how do we know? Like, you know, there's never been an explanation to me as to how the universe is either finite or infinite. Neither makes sense to me. I can't wrap well, my head well, around it. Well, it's infinitely either. expanding. Yeah, but, but even that, but expanding to what? But, you know, I think it's all how you think about where we're heading as a planet right now. It's like, I think... I believe in humans, but I also think we need a little bit of help right now to figure some stuff out on this planet. I don't think they would give us help. I am very, I am there. Well, look, I don't want to look to Hollywood for all our answers, but there are several films from Independence Day to to Close Encounters of a Third Kind. There's a lot of films out there that show us that these types of interactions uh, will not necessarily be positive. And what Stephen Hawking- But those are creations of our fucked up minds, uh, not theirs. Okay, well, yeah. You you can't even conceive what their minds might look like. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely. But like- conceive of us and it's not really good. Let's move back from fiction to- Something that actually happened in real life. Stephen Hawking talks about the fact that when Europeans came in contact with indigenous tribes here in America, uh, that was not very good. Once again, humans tribes. to humans, which is more evidence for why we're fucked but up. But that's an advanced you know? civilization coming in contact with a primitive civilization and the primitive, the primitive civilization suffering greatly from it. And that's what Stephen Hawking was saying. If an extremely advanced alien civilization came here, they could look at us and see that we're just like bacteria to them or something and just could start destroying us for whatever reason they had. Well, let me posit a moral case then. One of the many justifications I often hear for why we torture non-humans on an industrial scale is that we're smarter than them, right? Now, if that alien, if, if that's our ethics, which it's not mine, but that's what most people I know is ethics is, then if this extraterrestrial life form is smarter than we are, they would eat us. aren't they justified in torturing the shit out of us like we do non-humans? This is a theory Yuval Harari is uh, pose and I, I kind of think it's an important moral I don't know question. if they would be justified but you're just proving my point that they would actually do it that's why I'm, I'm with I'm anticipating this moment and I'm signaling to them I'm with them and hopefully they to, will <laughs> let me be. you're going to use yeah. alien torture of humans as basically justification for your theories about we shouldn't eat meat yeah my theories and I think the you know my Kantian deontological moral theory of why it's good to treat uh, beings and, and ends in themselves and treat them properly but yeah I mean, I can see this going very awry, potentially. And my question is, there's this like little group of scientists. I'm sure they're all very smart. But who gave them the authority to just decide to like send our return address out into the entire universe? Like none of us were asked. Only you But you're like a libertarian. This. Why should we stop now? I, I don't like this. <laughs> I think we should have an international body to determine these things. I mean, that seems like a really consequential thing. Like this could this is something that like potentially in a couple thousand years, like another life form could act on and then these you know i mean we look back in history and roll our eyes at a lot of things that people have done and i'm not sure that this, this just feels like it could potentially 
be a total nothing burger or like a really big mistake. Well, by the time they get here, climate change will wipe us all out anyway. That's what so I'm saying is like, once again, evidence for why we need them. But let's mm. admit this into space. See what they have to say about this. Well, back in the 70s, we sent out the Voyager with like a golden record of, I think, what was it? 116 pictures like explaining humanity and, and um, probably like, the best version of ourselves, like the Instagram <laughs> of the it 70s. Was, it, very weird. There's a good Vox video that's super eerie that like flips through all them. And it's, I, I mean, this is going to outlast us almost definitely because yeah. there's it's not going to erode in space and it's just going out in one way. And a, an intelligent life form would have to go and re detect it and retrieve it to um, to analyze it. But I'm more into that, like kind of just sending something out there. And if there's one day something so smart like enough analyze. to analyze, yeah. I mean, versus just like sending it out to everyone. I don't know. That seems. And there were nudes involved in that in those. Uh, no, I think they so censored them. I th I think that NASA really wanted to send them, and then somebody. I've, I I'm maybe I have to fact check myself I'm on the next sure episode. I'm pretty sure we sent unsolicited nudes into the universe. I I'm pretty sure that they the scientists wanted to, and then somebody slapped that down. Even though I it's think that's Nixon. important. Probably Nixon that slapped that down. Well. <laughs> The sound I hear is uh, our producers uh, probably telling us to wrap this segment up. <laughs> pretty long, pretty long segment, but fruitful nonetheless. We thank you all for listening and watching our show today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.